Hello, this is Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. It's a great pleasure to introduce this podcast. In it, we'll be discussing the paper by Vasiliki Dalsaklis, Laurie Snyder, Annette Majna, and Barbara Mazer, entitled Predictive Validity of Prechtel's Method on the Qualitative Assessment of General Movements, a Systematic Review of the Evidence, which is due to be published in the October issue of the journal. It will be discussed by Vasiliki Dasakvis and Dr. Laurie Schneider from the School of Physical and Occupational Therapy, McGill University, Montreal, Canada, and by Dr. Andrea Guzetta from the Department of Developmental Neuroscience, Stella Maris Institute, Pisa, Italy. Please can we start with the background? So thank you for your interest in this article. To situate the audience, as Dr. Baxter has said, I will begin with a brief background and move on to a summary of the article that is to be published this month. To begin, the prevalence of children who are born low birth weight and or very preterm has increased over the past several years due to advances in neonatal medicine and obstetrics. Many of these children go on to develop neurodevelopmental disabilities, ranging from severe, such as cerebral palsy, to mild, but equally important deficits, such as developmental coordination disorder, learning disorders, and attention deficits. This creates an important social and financial burden on caregivers and society at large, as most of these children will require additional medical attention, rehabilitation services, and special education services as they grow older. Intervention early in life, while the brain still demonstrates a reasonable amount of plasticity, may minimize developmental disability. Early identification is key. However, often doctors and health professionals have difficulty identifying with certainty which children will go on to develop disabilities and who would most benefit from early intervention. That is why the evaluation of infants' neurological integrity is so critical. Unfortunately, no gold standard currently exists to evaluate infants' neurological integrity at the bedside. Even the neurological exam, due to its lack of specificity, is considered to be the reference standard and not a gold standard. Current practice relies on general observations and handling of the infants in order to observe their responses to stimuli. However, fragile infants, especially those born very preterm or low birth weight, cannot tolerate the stress of being handled for a prolonged period of time. The increased stress influences their behavioral state, impacting upon performance, and is an important confounder of results. This is why the general movements assessment holds so much promise. A relatively novel method, it is used to evaluate the integrity of the infant nervous system by a gestalt observation of the quality of spontaneous movement patterns involving the limbs, trunk, and neck, which emerge over the first few months of life. The refinement of general movements occurs in two stages, normal writhing movements, present until six to nine weeks adjusted age, and fidgety movements, most prevalent at 12 weeks adjusted age, and stay about 16 to 20 weeks post-term. As the infant's nervous system matures and more voluntary anti-gravity movements emerge, the spontaneous movement patterns subside. Several studies have examined the predictive ability of the general movements assessment to identify early in infancy those infants who will later exhibit atypical development, more particularly whether or not it predicts future adverse neurodevelopmental outcomes. Only one systematic review considered the predictive ability of the general movements assessment, and this only until 24 months corrected age. Our paper aimed to systematically review the current level of evidence supporting the ability of the general movements assessment to predict outcomes throughout childhood. 
In terms of the quality of studies conducted on the general movements assessment, our systematic review concluded that most studies conducted to date demonstrate recurring important shortcomings, namely the use of small biased samples and the lack of psychometrically strong outcome measures. In general, there was conflicting evidence on whether the quality of fidgety movements or of writhing movements is more accurate in predicting neurodevelopmental outcomes at any age point. However, there was a general trend indicating that the classification of fidgety movements yielded higher predictive indices. Another general trend when looking at all the evidence found in the systematic review was that the general movements assessment had higher specificity in higher risk cohorts when predicting severe adverse neurological deficits such as cerebral palsy, but lower predictive indices for more subtle neurological deficits, such as simple or complex neurological dysfunction. However, it is important to keep in mind that this higher specificity may have been due to the relative prevalence of CP in high-risk cohorts. This study, a unique contribution is that it followed the guidelines set forth by the preferred reporting items for systematic reviews and meta-analysis, in other words, the PRISMA statement. As such, it was conducted in a very methodologically rigorous manner. We also grouped the results by age point in order to determine, first, where the gaps exist in follow-up, and second, the quality of the evidence at each age point. It was also interesting to separate results according to age point in order to determine whether or not the general movements assessment proved to be more predictive of outcomes at one age point versus another. This study also has important implications for practice for both clinicians and researchers. It demonstrated that overall, there is conflicting evidence regarding the predictive quality of the general movements to predict future adverse neurodevelopmental outcomes. However, it remains that the predictive ability is generally higher for more severe outcomes. This means that it may potentially be used as a non-invasive tool to rule out severe neurodevelopmental disabilities. However, from the current level of evidence, it would be important to not use this assessment alone and combine its results with other standardized infant clinical and neuroimaging assessments. The systematic review, as mentioned previously, also reveals important implications for researchers. First, studies should be designed that include larger heterogeneous and representative samples of infants. Second, skill-based outcome measures that are standardized and psychometrically strong should be used. Skill-based outcome measures are important in order to evaluate adaptive behavior and function at school age and those required for social participation. Also, by using these assessments, it will be easier to group analyses for future meta-analysis, which is impossible to do with the current level of evidence. Thirdly, more studies comparing the general movements assessment to traditional approaches of infant assessment should be carried out in order to demonstrate its increased predictive abilities if this is the case. The premise for the general movements assessment as a means for infant neurological assessment is fascinating, largely due to its non-invasive nature. However, before taking a stance, more conclusive high-quality evidence needs to be produced. Thank you. And uh, do you want to comment, please? I think I pretty much agree on everything that has been uh, said because I think that the real predictive value of this method as it is now, because we have to think that basically what we are doing is um, interpreting what we see in movements and giving a sort of uh, label of what we are watching, but that doesn't mean that the movement can itself have something inside that we're not yet capturing the way we look at it. So uh, in the way the method is now, I think that the highest predictive value is in relation to 
the presence of cerebral palsy. So I think that this paper has captured how the method should now be used in research terms. So if you, when we say that it's highly predictive, we mainly relate to the presence of cerebral palsy. Uh, then, of course, in the last years, what people that work in this field are trying to do is basically trying to see whether reading the movements in a more detailed way and um, so out of the general qualitative uh, categorization that is now used can provide further information and give some uh, additional sort of hints as to the outcome, especially concerning minor neurological disorders or even uh, people just try to see whether it can be predictive of red syndrome, autism, or um, ADHD. So I think so in all domains except cerebral palsy, a lot of studies need to be done. And I, I think this is pretty much how it is now, the state of the art in the general movement field. So I pretty much agree with the conclusion and also with all the limitations of the current studies that have been raised in this review, uh, namely the fact that cohorts were usually at high risk, so were not always representative of um, the general population or general low-risk population. Some biases in recruitment and uh, the analysis. Most of the studies were done by a few groups, so uh, I agree that in order to be generalized, we probably still need some other additional large studies performed out of Europe, uh, outside of Europe. So these are the general comments I can make on paper. Uh, then we can, of course, go into more details in some aspects if you if you want. My sense is that one of the strong recommendations was that for us to be able to carry out any kind of meta-analysis, many of these studies should conform to a different fabric or a different framework for how the studies are constructed so that we can look at combined effects, um, given the difficulties with having very, very large studies. So even if we were to come close enough together to be able to perform a meta-analysis of the different assessments that are now ongoing, that would be a great contribution to our understanding of, of the general movements assessment. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, we're talking about a literature that is covering two or three decades now, so some of the papers are really pretty old. I mean, among the papers that we can um, analyze, them, they are the least scientifically sound. So, I, I mean, I completely agree that we need further studies. Um, the way I think of general movement is not only as a tool that is predictive on itself, but it's something that uh, can give us a different way of watching things without removing any of the things that we already know and, and use. And probably the integration with other, with other tools is the, is the way to go, because probably we are looking at the neurological status of the baby from a different point of view. I agree with you 100%, Andre. Just to have that opportunity to be able to check the general movements assessment while you're performing, you know, your exam of choice, it gives you a whole other understanding of how the kitty is doing. And this idea of having an optimal motor repertoire is something that is novel, and it speaks to, you know, different capacities of the child that are evident early on. So the fact that you don't have to elicit all of these responses, that you can actually, you know, do perform a quick gestalt 
And I noticed, um, Andrea, that your study that was published in the European Journal of Pediatric Neurology actually examined the use of not using video at the bedside, which was an interesting perspective on making it more clinically approachable. Yes, yes. And, and, and actually our conclusion in that study was that uh, apart from the doubtful cases in which the, 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 I mean, the predictive value can be improved by watching a video, of course, apart from that, there is not a big difference between the two approaches. And also doing the courses, the general movement courses, we, we have an audience that is often very competent. So we have neurologists and neonatologists. And, and when we move to the uh, analysis of fidgety movement, it's really surprising that people, most of the people that attend the courses had never really recognized that kind of continuous uh, background movements, small movements of hands and, and neck. And, and this is pretty surprising because these are people that are uh, pretty uh, much in contact with young infants and so they see a lot of, uh, of their movements and their behavior. So I think that was a big sort of intuition from uh, Heinz Spector. But anyway, going back to the, the research and the predictive value of the technique, what I think is really that uh, the integration of, of this approach with other approaches can be very important, more than just the use on itself. And in the study that we've published in the European Journal uh, with Romeo, first author, in which we had 903 uh, subject, which is the largest to date. We try to stress this because we found out that using the, the general movements in combination with the traditional neuro exam, we could have an additional improvement of the predictive value. And in particular, we had a few subjects who developed in hemiplegia who were not spotted by the traditional neuro exam, but were spotted by the general movements. And on the other hand, we had some uh, subjects with abnormal frigidity, which is not strictly predictive of cerebral palsy, which actually did not have cerebral palsy that were correctly spotted by the traditional exam. So probably the integration of the techniques is, um, is an aspect that has to be uh, underlined. And one thing we've noticed in our uh, work through the literature is that many of the outcome measures are relevant, can be more, we could be a different choice of outcome measures to make things more functional, more relevant to greater numbers of people. For example, Toen's assessment really is another assessment of neurological integrity, whereas some of the other assessments that are coming out in the more recent literature, like the Patel, like the Villain Adaptive Behavior Scales, the Peabody, the Brinitz-Osarevsky gives us an idea of how that motor integrity or that neurological integrity translates into motor skills, something that's much more behavioral. And I think that that's a very positive trend that we saw coming out in this review of the literature. Yes, again, I think that the more sensitive you are in your outcome measures, the more you can um, investigate in the early assessment. Because as, as I said in the beginning, I think that we are talking about the way we interpret movement and early behavior. And so we are currently, I think we are using a broad classification that it, it is useful to predict uh, cerebral palsy. But probably there is a lot more happening in these babies that move and that probably we can try to to interpret in a more detailed way and see whether this is correlated with more sensitive and more specific measures of, of outcome. But probably also we should try to avoid to think that uh, everything can be predicted so early because otherwise 
we imply that what happens after that, the rehabilitation and environment and enrichment is not relevant, and probably it is relevant. And so probably when we try to, to find the best way of predicting the outcome, we should tolerate that we cannot be precise 100%. Absolutely. 100% agree with that. And ultimately, you know, we have a sense that the prediction is really based on, if we were to say that we can see everything at this point, we would be taking a more traditional neurological point of view, a neurodevelopmental point of view, where things really don't change. They just come from the infant and then basically can't respond. But something that's more dynamic, something that's more about learning and motor learning, brings in the whole construct of the environment, and there's no doubt that the environment is huge. But I guess what we're learning is how this motor repertoire does interact with environment. And I think, as you say, Andrea, you know, it really took Dr. Prechtel's observation of these children to see these fidgety movements. And all of us were looking at the children and not seeing fidgety movements. And so once it's brought forward, I think that it will change people's perspective on what's happening here. Uh, but never to say that you know general movements assessment or anything at, at neonatal intervals will be predictive, you know, purely predictive or, or largely predictive, simply because of the play of environment on the child and on the family. An important clinical observation, and I, we have found that it's become more and more important because particularly fidgety movements, you can see them quick, quickly and easily when you know what they are. And it adds an enormous dimension to the clinician's observations of the child. Yeah, I mean, I think that it might be that we will understand more of the clinical use of general movements when we start to understand more of why they are there and what, what's their meaning, what's their role. And I mean, what's the reason why we are moving so much at that time while we are awake and why we change the way we move between six and, and nine weeks in such a dramatic way. So the more we understand of the neurophysiology of what is happening and why it is happening, what's the role of moving as to the maturation of the brain, both in terms of cause and effect of the maturation, then probably we could understand more uh, the meaning of a abnormal movement and and the different types of abnormal movement. And so that's why I'm, I'm, we're so interested in these ongoing longitudinal studies with larger cohorts that go into into school age, like into six years of age, to have a sense of what's predicted. And certainly in our research, which we're pulling together now, we're finding that in fact, fine motor and visual motor outcomes are not particularly predicted in the particular study in our particular cohort, whereas gross motor like mobility, ambulation, mobility, uh, those kinds of outcomes were well predicted at three and seem to be predicted also at six. So it gives us perhaps the beginning of an insight into what the underlying mechanisms are. Yeah, absolutely. The, the speculations that uh, some people do and, and uh, I inspect them, uh, as well on the reasons why we move in that way and at that time are very fascinating, but probably need more scientific evidence and support in that. If we're going to use it clinically as part of a sort of quick assessment in outpatients, how variable are they? Well, they can sort of change in terms of the continuity, for example, because if the child is very attentive, is attracted by something, they can be sort of reduced. 
But the pattern is pretty constant, and I agree that you, if fidgety age is, if fidgety is there, then you see it straight away. You need just a few seconds to spot it. If you need more time, then it's already a sign of something that is not perfect. Thank you. Yes. That's what I was getting at, how reliable a brief assessment is. Because once you've been looking at Laurie, and basically we're quite prolonged assessments, aren't they, usually? Well, we followed Prechtel's methods. So the first two age points, which were preterm and term, he recommends a long video, and then you create a trajectory from that, from different pieces that are the writhing movements. But that yeah. at Fidgety, his standard at the time was to take a 20-minute video. But in fact, in the first five minutes, if the child is normal, even the first three minutes, you can see those fidgety movements right away. Yeah. That's very exciting. So how is it going to develop? What next, apart from trying to do more robust studies? Well, I think what the stuff that Ari Boz is doing, where he's basically bringing in other elements to see, you know, what does this general repertoire respond to in other developmental repertoires, and making it a very specific science in terms of how to recognize these things. I mean, it kind of takes it a bit out of the hands of the average practitioner, I think, but nonetheless, in research, if it is found that there is a more robust way to combine the general movements assessment with some of these other parameters that they're bringing in, that seems like it would be very, very positive. And at that point, it could be taught effectively to clinicians. Right now, I think that it's so soft and subtle that it would take a certain amount of instruction. You have to know, you know where you were going to, to have a course like that to teach it. And I think it's very promising. Also, the other idea would be to combine the GMs with something that is um, behavioral, like how functional is the child, how able is the child to participate in caregiving routines, the test of infant motor performance, which was what the assessment that we um, used in our study is, is an interesting infant measure to, that tests functional postural mechanisms. Um, all these things are interesting potential, but I, you know, it is a fascinating study and it keeps on turning up in, in positive ways. Um, you know, now we know that it really does seem to be a marker for cerebral palsy. You know, that's not something that was absolutely evident at the beginning of all this research. Yeah, I, I think these are the directions, in, especially in the clinical domain. Probably the other type of study that is needed now that is starting to grow is the, the studies that are trying to analyze the movements in a more computerized or quantitative way. And there are a few centers in Europe that are trying to use different approaches to explore the kinematic features of the movements to see whether this can help in both interpreting what is that we are perceiving as normal and abnormal and also in what can be the um, neurophysiological underpinnings of the different kinds of movements. And so this is another area that is probably that needs to be expanded from the more experimental research part. Thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to add, please, as well? I guess one of the things of resistance to this method, uh, you know, just casually, because I notice that it's much more uh, it seems to have become much more popular in Europe and perhaps Australia, but North America has had a certain resistance or just a information shadow, not sure. But the whole idea that it seems to 
to take time to learn this method, the two five-day courses. But I think I, I speak for all of the members of the GM's trust when I say, you know, that any method worthwhile takes a certain amount of time. And I think that it's a worthwhile investment compared to other assessments that, for example, MRI or any of these other things, ultimately those are worthwhile exercises. So I think the fact that there is a certain amount of time involved to learn this it shouldn't necessarily be seen as a deterrent uh, rather than a challenge because, in fact, there's a great deal of value that's added for that time spent. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I had the, the luck to, at the beginning of my training, to meet Lily Dubovic, uh, and I learned her approach even before learning the agenda movements. And I think, for example, the Dubovic assessment, it's very easy to learn, but then you have to use it a lot to have the feeling that you are really capturing uh, something because you you need really to have a lot of experience with uh, many babies and to start to see, oh, yes, this is, because of this lesion, etc. While with the general movements, you need a little bit more to learn it, but then you immediately have the impression that you are really capturing something that is relevant, uh, so to speak. So, I, I mean, they're both very, very good methods. I, I agree that you need a lot of effort for anything that you do in clinical work. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we've now come to the end of our podcast. It has been extremely informative, as always. I've learned a lot, and I hope everyone reading the article finds it given more context from hearing this discussion. Um, general movements are a very appealing approach, and it's nice to see more hard evidence coming through about them. And just to remind our listeners, the article is by Darfak et al., and it's entitled Predictive Validity of Prechtel's Method on the Qualitative Assessment of General Movements, a Systematic Review of the Evidence, and many thanks indeed to Vasiliki Dasaklis, Dr. Laurie Spider, and Dr. Andrea Guzetta for their very interesting and informative discussion.